Chapter 6 of Marvels of Modern Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by N. Grant, Burlington, Vermont. Marvels of Modern Science by Paul Severing. Chapter 6 Ocean Palaces. Ocean Greyhounds. Present-day floating palaces. Regal. Appointments. Passenger accommodation. Food consumption. The 1,000-foot boat. The strides of naval architecture and marine engineering have been marvelous within the past generation. Today, huge leviathans glide over the waves with a swiftness and safety deemed absolutely impossible 50 years ago. In view of the luxurious accommodations and princely surroundings to be found on the modern ocean palaces, it is interesting to take a look back now, almost a hundred years to the time when the Savannah was the first steamship to cross the Atlantic. True, the voyage of this pioneer of steam from Savannah to Liverpool was not much of a success, but she managed to crawl across the sails very materially, aiding the engines and heralded the dawn of a new day in transatlantic travel. No other steamboat attempted the trip for almost 20 years after, until in 1838 the Great Western made the run in 15 days. This revolutionized water travel and set the whole world talking. It was the beginning of the passing of the sailing ship and was an event for rejoicing. And the old wooden hulks, with their lazily flapping wings, waiting for a breeze to stir them, Men and women and children huddled together like so many animals in a pen, had to spend weeks and months on the voyage between Europe and America. There was little or no room for sanitation. The space was crowded. Deadly germs lurked in every cranny and crevice, and consequently hundreds died. To many indeed the sailing ship became a floating hearse. In those times, and they are not so remote, a voyage was dreaded as a calamity. Only necessity compelled the undertaking. It was not travel for pleasure. For pleasure under such circumstances and amid such surroundings was impossible. The poor emigrants who were compelled through stress and poverty to leave their homes for a foreign country feared not toil in a new land, but they feared the long voyage with its attending horrors and dangers. Dangerous as it was, for most of the sailing vessels were unseaworthy, and when a storm swept the waters, they were as children's toys, at the mercy of wind and wave. When the passenger stepped on board, he always had the dread of a watery grave before him. How different today! Danger has been eliminated almost to the vanishing point, and the mighty monsters of steel and oak now cut through the waves and storms and hurricanes with as much ease as a duck swims through a pond. From the time the Great Western was launched, steamship sailing between American and English ports became an established institution. Soon after the Great Western's first voyage, a sturdy New England Quaker from Nova Scotia named Samuel Kennard went over to London to try and interest the British government in a plan to establish a line of steamships between the two countries. He succeeded in raising 270,000 pounds and built the Britannica, the first canard vessel to cross the Atlantic. This was in 1840. As ships go now, she was a small craft indeed, 
Her gross tonnage was 1,154, and her horsepower was 750. She carried only first-class passengers, and these only to the limit of 100. There was not much in the way of accommodation as the quarters were cramped. The stateroom small, and the sanitation and ventilation defective. It was on the Britannica that Charles Dickens crossed over to America in 1842, and he has given us, in his usual style, a pen picture of his impressions aboard. He stated that the saloon reminded him of nothing so much as of a hearse, in which a number of half-starved stewards attempted to warm themselves by a glimmering stove, and that the staterooms, so-called, were boxes in which the bunks were shelves spread with patches of filthy bedclothing, somewhat after the style of a mustard plaster. This criticism must be taken with a little reservation. Dickens was a pessimist and always censorious, and as he had been feted and feasted with the fat of the land, he expected that he should have been entertained in kingly quarters on shipboard. But because things did not come up to his expectations, he dipped his pen in vitriol and began to criticize. At any rate, the Britannica in her day was looked upon as the ne plus ultra in naval architecture, the very acme of marine engineering. The highest speed she developed was eight and one-half knots, or about nine and three-quarters miles per hour. She covered the passage from Liverpool to Boston in fourteen and one-half days, which was then regarded as a marvelous feat, and one which was proclaimed throughout England with triumph. For a long time, the Britannica remained queen of the seas for speed. But in 1852, the Atlantic record was reduced to nine and a half days by the Arctic. In 1876, the city of Paris cut down the time to eight days and four hours. Twelve years later, in 1879, the Arizona still further reduced it to seven days and eight hours. In 1881, the Alaska, the first vessel to receive the title of Ocean Greyhound, made the trip in six days and 21 hours. In 1885, the Umbria bounded over in six days and two hours. In 1890, the Teutonic of the White Star Line came across in five days, 18 hours, and 28 minutes, which was considered the limit for many years to come. It was not long, however, until the canard lowered the colors of the White Star, when the Lusania in 1893 brought the record down to five days and 12 hours. For a dozen years or so, the limit of speed hovered around the five-and-a-half-day mark, the laurels being shared alternately by the vessels of the Canard and White Star companies. Then the Germans entered the field of competition with the steamers of from 14,500 to 20,000 tons register and from 28,000 to 40,000 horsepower. The Deutschland soon began setting the pace for the ocean greyhounds, while other vessels of the North German Lloyd Line that won transatlantic honors were the Kaiser Wilhelm II, Kaiser Wilhelm der Große, Krompins Wilhelm, and Krompinsessen Cecil, all remarkably fast boats with even modern luxury aboard that science could devise. 
These vessels are equipped with wireless telegraphy, submarine signaling systems, watertight compartments, and every other safety appliance known to marine skill. The Kaiser Wilhelm der Grosse raised the standard of German supremacy in 1902 by making the passage from Cherbourg to Sandy Hook Lightship in five days and 15 hours. In 1909, however, the sister steamships Mauritania and Lusitania of the Canard Line lowered all previous ocean records by making the trip in a little over four and a half days. They have been keeping up this speed to the present time and are universally regarded as the fastest and best equipped steamships in the world. The very last word in ocean travel. On her mid-September voyage, the Mauritania has broken all ocean records by making the passage from Queenstown to New York in 4 days, 10 hours, and 47 minutes. But they are closely pursued by the White Star Greyhounds such as the Oceanic, the Celtic, and the Cedric, steamships of the worldwide fame for service, appointments, and equipment. Yet at the present writing, the Cunard Company has another vessel on the stocks to be named the Falconia, which in measurements will eclipse the other two and which they are confident will make the Atlantic trip inside four days. The White Star Company is also building two immense boats to be named the Olympic and Titanic. They will be 840 feet in length and will be the largest ships afloat. However, it is said that the freight and passenger room is being more considered in the construction than speed and they will aim to lower no records. Each will be able to accommodate 5,000 passengers besides a crew of 600. All the great liners of the present day may justly be styled ocean palaces, as far as luxuries and general appointments are concerned. But as the Mauritania and Lusitania are best known, a description of either of these will convey an idea to stay-at-homes of the regal magnificence and splendors of the floating hotels which modern science places at the disposal of the traveling public. Though sister ships and modeled on similar lines, the Mauritania and Lusitania differ somewhat in construction. Of the two, the Mauritania is the more typical ship as well as the more popular. This modern triumph of the naval architect and marine engineer was built by the firm Swan, Hunter, and Co., at Wells End on the Tyne in 1907. The following are her dimensions. Length overall 790 feet. Length between perpendiculars 760 feet. Breadth 88 feet. Depth molded 60.5 feet. Gross tonnage 32,000. Draft 33.5 feet. Displacement 38,000 tons. She has accommodation space for 563 first cabin, 500 second cabin, and 1,300 third class passengers. She carries a crew of 390 engineers, 70 sailors, 350 stewards, a couple of score of stewardesses, 50 cooks, the officers and captain, besides a maritime band, a dozen or so telephone and wireless telegraph operators, editor and printers for the wireless bulletin published on board, and two attendants for the elevator. The type of engine is what is known as the Parsons turbine. There are 23 double-ended and two single-ended boilers. The engines develop 68,000 horsepower, 
they are fed by 192 furnaces. The heating surface is 159,000 square feet. The grate surface is 4,060 square feet. The steam pressure is 195 pounds to the square inch. The highest speed attained has been almost 26 knots, or 30 miles an hour. At this rate, the number of revolutions is 180 to the minute. The coal daily consumed by the fiery maw of the furnaces is enormous. On one trip between Liverpool and New York, more than 7,000 tons is required, which is a consumption of over 1,500 tons daily. There are nine decks, seven of which are above the water line. Cortisine has been largely used for deck covering instead of wood as it is much lighter. On the boat deck, which extends over the greater part of the center of the ship, are located several of the beautiful ensuite cabins. Abaft these at the forward end are the grand entrance hall, the library, the music room, and the lounging room and smoking room for the first cabin passengers. There is splendid promenading space on the boat deck where passengers can exercise to their heart's content and also indulge in games and sports with all the freedom of field life. Many lifeboats swing on davits and instead of being a hindrance or obstacles, act as shades from the sunshine and as breaks from the wind. In the space for the first class passengers are arranged a large number of cabins. What are known as the regal suites, are both port and starboard, and along each side of the main deck are more on suite rooms. On the shelter deck there are no first-class cabin quarters. At the forward end of this deck are the very powerful Napier engines for working the anchor gear. Abaft this on the starboard side is the general lounging room for third-class passengers, while on the port side is their smoking room with a companionway leading to the third-class dining saloon below and to the third-class cabins on the main and lower decks. The third-class galleys are accommodated on the main deck house and close by is a set of refrigerating machinery used in connection with the rooms for the storage of supplies for the kitchen department. The side of the ship for a considerable distance aft of this is plated up to the promenade deck level so that the third-class passengers have not only convenient rooms, but a protected promenade. Abaft this promenade is another open one. Indeed, the accommodations for the third-class are as good as what the first-class were accustomed to on most of the liners some dozen years ago. To the left of the grand staircase on the deckhouse is a children's dining saloon and nursery. On the top deck are dining saloons for all three classes of passengers. That for the third being forward, for the first amidships, and for the second near the stern. 470 first class passengers can be seated at a time, 250 second class, and more than 500 of the third class. The main deck is given up entirely to staterooms. The whole of the lower deck forward is also arranged for third class staterooms. The firemen and other engine room and stockhold workers are located in rooms above the machinery with separate entrances and exits to and from their work. Promenade and exercise space is provided for them on the shelter deck, which is fenced off from the space of the second and third class passenger. Amidships is a coal banker with a compartment under the engines for the storage of supplies. The coal trimmers are accommodated alongside the engine easing, 
and abaft this are the mail rooms with accommodation for the stewards and other helpers. The orlop, or eighth deck, is devoted entirely to machinery with coal bunkers on each side of the boilers to provide against the effect of collisions. The general scheme of color throughout the ship is pleasing and harmonious. The wood, for the most part, is oak and mahogany. There are 50,000 square feet of oak in parquet flooring. All the carving and tracing is done in the wood, no superpositions or stucco work whatever being used to show reliefs. The grand stairway shows the Italian Renaissance style of the 16th century. The panels are of French walnut. The carving of columns and pilasters is of various designs, but the aggregate is pleasing in effect. The library extends across the deckhouse, 33 by 56 feet. The walls of the deckhouse are bowed out to form bay windows. When you first enter the library, the effect is as though you were looking at shimmering marble. This is owing to the lightness of the panels, which are sycamores stained in light gray. The mantelpiece is of white statuary marble. The great swing doors, which admit you, have beveled glass panels set in bronze casings. The chairs have mahogany frames done in light plush. The first-class lounging room is probably the most artistic as well as the most sumptuous apartment in the ship. The panels are of beautiful ingrained mahogany, dully polished a rich brown. The white ceiling is of simple design with boldly carved moldings and is supported by columns embossed in gold of exquisite workmanship. Some of the panels are of curiously woven tapestries, the fruit of oriental looms. Chandeliers of beautiful design in rich bronze and crystal depend from the ceiling. The curtains, hanging with their soft folds against the dull gold of the carved curtain boxes, are of a charming cream silk, and with their flower borders lend a tone both sumptuous and refined. The carpet is of a slender trellis design with bluish-pink roses, trailing over a pearl-gray ground and forms a perfect foil to the splendid furniture. The chairs are of polished beech covered with 18th century brocade. The smoking room of the first class is done in rich oak carving with an inlaid border around the panels. An unusual feature in the main part of the room is a jube passageway extending from the whole length and divided into recesses with divans and card tables. Writing tables may be found in secluded nooks free from interruption. The windows are of unusual size, are semicircular, and give a home-like appearance to the room. The dining saloon is in light oak, with all carvings worked in the wood. A children's nursery off the main stairway in the deckhouse is done in mahogany. Enameled white panels depict the old favorite of the four-and-twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. An air of delicate refinement and rich luxury hangs about the regal rooms. A suite consists of drawing room, dining room, two bedrooms, bathroom, and a private corridor. The drawing and dining rooms of these suites are paneled in East India stained wood, probably the hardest and most durable of all timber. The bedrooms are in Georgian style finished in white with satin hangings. The special staterooms are also finished in rich woods on white and gold and have damask and silk hangings and draperies. An idea of the richness and magnificence of the interior decorations may be obtained 
when it is learned that the cost of these decorations exceeded three million dollars. The galleys, pantries, bakery and confectionery, and utensil cleaning rooms extend the full length of the ship. Electricity plays an important part in the culinary department. Electric motors mix dough, run grills and roasters, clean knives, and manipulate plate racks and other articles of the kitchen. The main cooking range for the saloon is 24 by 8 feet, heated by coal. There are four steam boilers and 12 steam ovens. There are extensive cold storage compartments and refrigerating chambers. In connection with the commissariat department, it is interesting to note the food supply carried for a trip of this floating caravansary. Here is a list of the leading supplies needed for a trip, but there are hundreds of others too numerous to mention. 40,000 pounds of fresh beef, 1,000 pounds of corned beef, 8,000 pounds of mutton, 800 pounds of lamb, 600 pounds of veal, 500 pounds of pork, 4,000 pounds of fish, 2,000 fowls, 100 geese, 150 turkeys, 350 ducks, 400 pigeons, 250 partridges, 250 grouse, 200 pheasants, 800 quail, 200 snipe, 35 tons of potatoes, 75 hampers of vegetables, 500 quarts ice cream, 3,500 quarts of milk, 30,000 eggs, and in addition many thousand bottles of mineral water and spiritous liquors. The health of the passengers is carefully guarded during the voyage. The science of thermodynamics has been brought to us to as great perfection as possible. Not alone is the heating thoroughly up to modern science requirements, but the ventilation as well, by means of thermotanks, suction valves, and exhaust fans. All foul air is expelled and fresh current sent through all parts of the ship. There is an electric generating station abaft the main engine room containing four turbo generators, each of 375 kilowatts capacity. There are more than 5,000 electric lights and every room is connected by an electric push bell. There is a telephone exchange through which one can be connected with any department of the vessel. When in harbor, either at Liverpool or New York, the wires are connected to the city central exchange so that the ships can be communicated with either by local or long distance telephone. By means of wireless telegraphy, voyagers can communicate with friends during almost the entire trip and learn the news of the world the same as if they were on land. A bulletin is published daily on board, giving news of the leading happenings of the world. There is a perfect fire alarm system on board with fire mains on each side of the ship from which connections are taken to every separate department. There are boxes with hydrant and valve in each room, and a system of break glass fire alarms with a drop indicator box in the chart room and also one in the engine room to notify in the case of any outbreak. The sanitation is all that could be desired. There are flush lavatories on all decks in marble and onyx in which all sanitary contrivances and apparatus of the best design. The vessel is propelled by four screws, rotated by turbine engines, and the power developed is equal to that of 68,000 horses. Now 68,000 horses placed head to tail in a single line would reach a distance of 90 miles, or as far as New York to Philadelphia. 
and if the steeds were hardest twenty abreast, there would be no fewer than three thousand four hundred rows of powerful horses. Such is the steamship of today, but there is no doubt that the thousand-foot boat is coming, which probably will cross the Atlantic Ocean in less than four days, if not in three. But the question is, where shall we put her? That is, where shall we dock her? To build a thousand-foot pier to accommodate her appears like a good answer to this question. But the great difficulty is that there are United States government regulations restricting the length of piers to 800 feet. Docking space along the shore of New York Harbor is too valuable to permit the ship being berthed parallel to the shore. Therefore, vessels must dock at right angles to the shore. Some provisions must soon be made in the regulations as to dock lengths revised. The thousand-footer may be here in a couple of years or so. In the meantime, the two 840-footers are already on the stocks at Belfast and are expected to arrive early in 1911. Before they come, changes and improvements must be made in the docking and harbor facilities of the Port of New York. If higher speed is demanded, increased size is essential, since with even the best result, every hundred horsepower added involves an addition to machinery weight of approximately 14 tons and to the area occupied of about 40 square feet. To accomplish this, the ship must be as much larger in proportion. The ship designer has to work within circumscribed limits. If he could make his vessel of any depth, he might build much larger and there would be theoretically no limit to his speed. 40 knots an hour might be obtained as easily as the present maximum of 26. But in designing his ship, he must remember that in the harbors of New York or Liverpool, the channels are not much beyond 30 feet in depth. High speed necessitates powerful engines, but if the engines are too large, there will not be space enough for the coal to feed the furnaces. If the breadth of the ship is increased, the speed is diminished. Well, on the other hand, if two powerful engines are put in a narrow vessel, she will break her back. The proper proportions must be carefully studied as regards length, breadth, depth, and weight so that the vessel will derive the greatest speed from her engines. End of chapter 6